Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. We think about English and we think about words that we already have that are used to describe exclusively women. I can't think of any that are positive. Mm. I can only think of words that I won't say on this podcast. Hello and welcome to The World As It Should Be, a podcast in which we ask our guests to tell us what they would change to help create their perfect world. By listening to what they'd like to change, we'll hear more about who they are, what they do and what inspires them. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind Prima Donna, a uniquely anarchic and joyous festival of everything creative. My name is Shona Abianka and I'm a book publicist working with some of the most thought-provoking authors writing today. I'm Catherine Riley, a writer and director of the festival. We're delighted to be your guides on this podcast adventure. The world as it should be from Prima Donna. Eliza Reed was raised near Ottawa in Canada and moved to Iceland in 2003 when she was 27. In 2016, Eliza's husband took office as president of Iceland as she became Iceland's first lady. She is also the co-founder of the acclaimed Icelandic Writers' Retreat and a former editor of Icelandair's in-flight magazine and a former staff writer at Iceland Review magazine. In her capacity as First Lady, Eliza has been active in promoting gender equality, entrepreneurship and innovation, as well as tourism, sustainability and the country's writers and rich literary heritage. She was named UN Special Ambassador for Tourism and the Sustainable Development Goals in 2017. Eliza has been published in several newspapers and magazines, including a much-lauded op-ed in the New York Times on the strange role of the First Lady. She's also delivered a TEDx talk on the subject. Her book, Secrets of the Sprachar, Iceland's Extraordinary Women and How They Are Changing the World, is out on the 8th of March. The book's been praised by many incredible people, including Cheryl Strayed, best-selling author of Wild, and Hilary Rodham Clinton, who describes it as a fascinating window into what a more gender-equal world could look like and why it's worth striving for. We are absolutely thrilled to have Eliza on the podcast today. Welcome to the world as it should be. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Eliza, can you tell us more about the role of a first lady? It's I'm, in, in my head, I imagine you wear a tiara, um, you go to many banquets, those kind of things happen. What, what? <laughs> no, no tiaras, no tiaras, either um, expected nor owned. Um, well, the wonderful thing is that there really is no job title for this. And I suppose what needs to be explained first is my role in the context of being married to the president of Iceland, because... Iceland is a republic and has a president and also has a prime minister. So the prime minister is the person who um, is the head of government, Uh, the prime minister, parliamentarians, parliament, they decide the laws. So the president of Iceland is the head of state, but should not involve him or herself sort of in the day-to-day runnings of, of politics. So the president has a veto over legislation but is not uh, generally expected to be a member of a political party and certainly isn't uh, expected to have partisan views in that sense. So a president can talk about how, for example, healthcare is very important, but probably wouldn't say we need to invest more money in this healthcare plan and less in this this plan. Uh, So as first lady, as the the spouse of the president, uh, I have a very undefined role. I like to think that I could have no role at all if I chose to, because of course I haven't been elected to any kind of a position, but I look upon it as a wonderful honor and privilege and opportunity 
it's a wonderful opportunity to serve and I enjoy it every day. But I think that the positive side of having no job description means that I, I get to sort of shape it a little bit in the way that I want. And, and I have a, a platform now, certainly within Iceland at least, and hopefully to, to a degree abroad, where I can put forth, um, where I can voice opinions on issues that I think are important, like, for example, gender equality, which as I write in the introduction to this new book that I wrote, I don't see as a political issue, but as a human rights issue. So um, Iceland is held up always as a kind of exemplar of a, of a country that's getting gender equality right. Um, it, how simplistic is that, do you think, in your opinion? And, and, and what, where, where else does Iceland have to go and where, where should the rest of the world be following? Well, it's uh, simplistically accurate to the extent that Iceland has topped the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Equality Index for the past dozen years. Mm. So when you look at the indices that the World Economic Forum ranks at, Iceland is scoring the highest on that. But coming in first on a ranking doesn't mean that we've won the race. And obviously there is no race at all to begin with. So I think here in Iceland, although we have a lot that we're proud of, although we we are clearly moving in the right direction, and I think we've kind of passed the tipping point as a society here, that we're not so much debating whether trying to achieve gender equality is a worthy goal, but more how we should go about trying to achieve it. I think that we're also very cognizant of the fact that we have a long way to go in a lot of areas. And if this is as good as it gets, then that's really not that great. So we're, we're very focused on continuing to remain vigilant in this fight. Because as, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us that when you take your eyes off things, even, even for other crises that obviously deserve people's attention, then we take other steps back. And the same World Economic Forum showed us that during the global pandemic, uh, we added an extra generation in terms of number of years that the World Economic Forum thinks it will take for us to achieve gender parity. Do you think that Iceland is the best country in the world to be a woman? That's an excellent question, Jonah. And and I think I just don't have a lot of other experience. It's certainly one of the best. Um, and I suppose if you are saying, is it the best, it would depend on one's individual circumstances, because mm-hmm. there are obviously certain uh, groups that have more challenges or individual circumstances. But absolutely, I would say it's one of the best. Yes. How does it compare to Canada, which is your homeland? It, it the Nordics overall all score very highly on these indices and in terms of, of individuals experiencing things, uh, I would also say higher. Um, although Canada does relatively well, I think Canada as a society as well is working towards greater gender equality because they also recognize that that benefits everybody. It's it's not a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. I think. Canada uh, doesn't have as many women, for instance, in uh, political office. And I think role models are very important for us. And the although they're working to change that, the support offered to new parents um, and to for uh, pre-compulsory uh, education is, is less. So in Iceland, there's very heavily subsidized childcare. Uh, there is excellent parental leave program for both parents. And that uh, is, is sort of very friendly, family-friendly policies that therefore encourage a greater number of women in the workplace. So Iceland also has the highest rate of female participation in the workforce of the OECD. So you, do you um, before we talk about your book, um, which we do want to do, uh, just, just kind of, I'm really interested in your kind of journey to where you are now. What, what took you, what took you to Iceland, your geographical journey, and what took you down this kind of path of exploring gender equality, particularly, and the stuff that you know you write about in the book. 
Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the wonderful things of life, isn't it? That you just have no idea where you might end up. And certainly, when I was growing up on, on in in the countryside in Canada, I I barely knew that Iceland was a country, much less anything else about it. And um, beyond that, I suppose I, I didn't know where I'd end up. But my story isn't terribly. Um, exciting or original, but I, I did a degree, a degree at the University of Toronto in inter- international relations. And then I moved to England for graduate school, uh, where I uh, took a master's degree at Oxford University. And that is where I met an Icelandic man, the only Icelandic man who was studying at that college at Oxford at the time. So uh, Canadians were kind of a dime a dozen, but the Icelander was very exotic and interesting. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 we we met and uh, I ended up going on our first date together because I kind of uh, I, I kind of cheated in a contest to win a blind date with someone, which I elaborate on. <laughs> I love this story. <laughs> I, I like it too. And I didn't, I, I shouldn't say cheated, but I kind of tempted fate a little bit. There was a raffle and uh, he was going to draw a name out of a cup to take the person on a date. And I kind of bombarded um, the, the cup that he had with with pieces of paper with my name on it, so he would ultimately, inevitably draw my name and have to take me out on a date. I thought it, I thought it was sort of giving fate a bit of a push. I feel like it's kind of symbolic of women just going for what they want as well. You know? so, yeah, I was going to say that's not cheating; that's just winning. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, there was no rule that you weren't allowed to do that. So. Absolutely, um, that is one of the one of the best stories in the book, I think. But there are also a lot of incredible stories in this book. Can you just summarize what Secrets of the Sprakar is about? Sure. So I guess I should explain first the word Sprakar because it's not a word people will recognize. It's an Icelandic word, and even if you happen to be listening and also speak Icelandic, you may not recognize it because it's a very obscure Icelandic word. But Sprakar is an Icelandic word that means extraordinary women which is this wonderful word I wanted to use and hopefully even bring into the English language a little bit. Because if we think about English and we think about words that we already have that are used to describe exclusively women, I can't think of any that are positive. Mm. I can only think of words that I won't say on this podcast. So uh, just the fact that this is a this is a positive and encouraging word, I think is wonderful. So Secrets of the Spraka really paints a portrait of a country where I hope gender equality is sort of tantalizingly within reach. And the narrative thread is my own story as this person who, you know, never expected to become first lady of the country and is trying to make the most of my unexpected opportunity and to use my voice. But it also profiles almost 40 different sprakar or outstanding women who live in Iceland uh, in all walks of life. I deliberately wanted to choose people who weren't necessarily the first to do something or the pioneer of, of something else, but just regular women like you and me. Um, who were who were living their lives and how they experienced those lives in the context of gender equality. And so all of the chapters focus on different aspects of society, be it forming friendships or parenthood or politics or sexuality or women in the workplace or uh, m- media representation, or arts and culture. And, and hopefully by doing so, I'm able to inspire people in other countries as to the benefits of working towards achieving a more equitable society for everyone and and hopefully people have learned something along the way about Iceland and and just find these stories interesting and and entertaining Mm, it's brilliant is there anything that you found out or any individual that you found out that you were just blown away by you just you know 
stand. I mean, they're all standout stories, but or anything that's particularly kind of Icelandic. Icelandic is Iceland. Sorry, is such a unique culture, and 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 people yeah. there are so. I did try to bring out um, stories that were somehow very, you know, quote unquote Icelandic and yet yeah. also relatable. So I profile, for example, a farmer called Heiða Gudni Ausgustotir, who um, is a farmer and a sheep shearer. And just the fact that she is a solo woman doing these things is really the achievement there. And sh- her farm, which is her family farm that she runs, is the size, the, the land is the side of, size of Guernsey. Mm. And it's... Um, 24 kilometers from Iceland's most threatening volcano. Wow. And she just, and you know, the, the farm, the, the, there has been a farm there for about 800 years. Obviously the, the, the house itself has been destroyed and rebuilt, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, she said, well, she said something along the lines of, well, if I, if I spent all the time worrying about an eruption tomorrow, I'd get nothing done today. So that's how, and she just gets on with a job. And, um, and, and I thought that was a very sort of quintessentially Icelandic approach to things. How did you find her and how did you find all these women to interview? It really depended. Some of the people I actually knew because I kind of had this memoir thread that I was bringing about throughout the book. Um, a lot of the women I knew, I didn't know um, Heather Goodney before, but um, I knew of her. Someone had written a book about her in Iceland. She's been very proactive about um, environmental causes and, and trying to prevent a land being uh, dammed for hydroelectric plants or, or other or high heavy industry plants. But there was also a story about her on the BBC a few years ago, because several years before, if I'm remembering this correctly, a relative of hers who ran a modeling agency had asked her to fly to New York to do a few modeling shoots. She's a very uh, beautiful woman. And she did that. And she took the pictures and then she went back to farming, which is what she had had always wanted to do. But the BBC story headline was something about, you know, the Icelandic model turned farmer. (laughs) And, and, you know, was really emphasizing this whole angle as if she was like a big supermodel. And then she was, you know, changed gears, which wasn't quite how it was, I think. (laughs) That's a great retelling of that story. Did you have to persuade any of these people to be interviewed or were they kind of clamoring to tell their stories? Surprisingly not. I was very convinced that some someone I asked would say, ah, oh, this isn't really for me. I don't really want to talk. And everybody who I asked to interview um, was happy to be interviewed. And, you know, I have a, a great respect for all of them. And, and, and hopefully they are happy with how I have, have told their, their stories. Um, they're all sort of special stories. Um, I think some of them were maybe a bit surprised. You know, they would say, well, what, I haven't done anything remarkable. I don't know why you're talking to me, but I think that's all the more um, that that adds to the charm of it overall, because, you know, we all have something interesting to say, really. We all have stories we can tell. So your book is about, uh, the subtitle is um, Iceland's Extraordinary Women and How They're Changing the World, which is a perfect segue into our podcast um, and your uh, ways of changing the world. So do you want to talk us through your, fir- your first change? Mm-hmm. So my changes all relate to gender equality. I felt I needed to focus it a bit because there's so much in the world we can do. So I sort of narrowed it all. So my first one was that people of all genders will fight for further equality because gender equality isn't a quote unquote women's responsibility. And I think that makes a huge difference. And I think, you know, it's very important that we know, and maybe I'm probably I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know, gender equality is a women's issue. It's not a zero sum game where women are somehow benefiting at the expense of everybody else. Um, 
this is an issue that benefits everybody. And there are many, many studies that talk about how the more gender equal a society is, the happier its society is, the longer living its population is, women and men, um, and the more peaceful it is. And with companies, we see that it has more of a difference on their bottom line. So this is something that benefits everybody. And it's also something that really isn't going to change unless most people are on board with it. And it's not kind of shuttled off to to one specific gender. Mm. It's a hard sell, isn't it? I used to, um, I I was involved in the Women's Equality Party here in the UK. Um, Mm -hmm. So my job was in comms and like communicating everything that you've said, the truth of everything that you've just said. And it was so, it's so difficult to persuade men, particularly, that this is a, this is a thing that they, they will benefit from. It's not like a drag that they need to do to kind of appease their wives or whatever. It's actually, it's nakedly self-interested to to, to do this this kind of work. We tendered out, um, you know, like a PR campaign to a a company who were, who came back with some ideas that men had in the company <laughs> drawn up to kind of get other men in, involved in this and their idea which which we didn't run was um to to show men around the world like in in stereotypical dress so there would have been somebody in a kind of nordic jumper like yeah. guffawing or somebody in i don't know like a an African nation laughing. And the idea was that those people in those cultures and those, those countries were laughing at British men because they had so much better, they had so much better lives because they had gender equality in their country. And we were like, that is not the way to sell feminism (laughs) to British men. Trust us. But anyway, what is the way to sell? (laughs) What is the answer? Well, you know, and I, I feel in some senses that I kind of exist in a bubble because like you say, all these conferences and all these suggestions and they're all attended by people who, you know, buy into, you know, are already kind of on board with the basic functions. So my, you know, a couple of things. One is the the actual numbers and the statistics is to get those studies, which are shown, you know, which are done by McKinsey and Co., which are done by the World Economic Forum that actually lay down the figures on the bottom line that show people the, the, you know, the cost benefit analysis in black and white. And another thing is, you know, working with the longer term vision as well. So, um, you know, raising our children up that way, that they, that they just grow up in an environment where they su- assume that working towards all types of equality is a very important ambition for our society. So that our sons, as they are getting older, just see that as a, as a natural, um, natural cause to be fighting for, if you will. And, and again, I think a lot of it also has to do with broadening the perception of masculinity. I think this sense, uh, and it's not something that I elaborated on enough in the book, really, and that's because I didn't want to have sort of one token man. But this idea that in some senses, mainstream society has kind of have, has kind of limited the definition of what a, what a real man should be to such a degree that anybody who kind of diverges outside of those really... Uh, restrictive borders already feels like they are kind of breaking the rules or getting out of their comfort zone to begin with. And, and I feel like if we can really have a much broader definition of masculinity, that encompasses more people who feel more comfortable with themselves to begin with. They will feel less threatened even by things, things of the, the outside. And, you know, for example, like, you know, there's studies here, a lot of men in Iceland, fathers in Iceland take the paternity leave. And I don't know any fathers who said, I wish I should have gone back to work. My career suffered, you know, uh, fathers take paternity leave, actually, their careers tend to do better. You know, they're unlike the statistics that we see for 
for the women. Um, and, and, you know, they have closer relationships with their children and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think it, again, it, it's just encouraging men to be, um, to be vocal about this and, and really to work towards expanding the very narrow definitions of masculinity. And when you first met your husband at Oxford, mm-hmm. was, was there a difference in the way he acted around you or around other women? Or was it as you got to know him? I mean, did the fact that he was Icelandic actually factor into how you felt at the beginning? Well, I think only in the sense that, you know, I'd never met someone from Iceland before. So he kind of formed all my stereotypes about the country, you know, so and it was a very international environment. It was a graduate college. So there's people from all over. And, you know, he uh, read voraciously. He's a historian by by training. Um, he's an introvert and, and he didn't uh, he didn't drink very much by by student standards. And so I just assumed that all Icelanders read voraciously and were kind of quiet <laughs> and didn't drink very much because that was the, that was my gauge. And obviously, like every other society, there are all types of Icelanders. <laughs> and, and I certainly wouldn't say probably that that, you know, hardly ever drinking is a national characteristic of the, <laughs> the but but um you know i i you know i wasn't thinking gender equality in that sense obviously uh when i met him um but uh, he was certainly not what you'd call the stereotypical lad I think yeah have a better term yeah mm. are you asking for yourself shona i know that you're, yeah, you know, you're back on the market <laughs> broadening my horizons <laughs> just finding out just might go on holiday you know, travel's opening up <laughs> Yeah, good. Could you tell us about the second way, Liza, that you would change the world? I talked about this, I suppose, a little bit too. Uh, When it comes to gender equality, I would say really continuing to emphasize the value of inclusion and diversity from a very young age. And I, um, I'm not only saying that from the context of of gender equality, but also all kinds of inclusion and diversity. Um, I'm an immigrant to Iceland, obviously. I probably fall into the kind of category of the most privileged immigrants, but immigrants nonetheless have unique challenges that people who are born in Iceland and have Icelandic as their first language don't necessarily have. And so I've really experienced what it is like to to move to a new country and a culture with all of the assumptions and challenges that that and opportunities that that provides. And I really want to try to encourage that, you know, all kinds of diversity within Icelandic society so that people feel like they're welcome, that, that their, um, you know, backgrounds and beliefs have a place and are really contributing to enhance the, the fabric of our society here. And I'm also talking about being um, inclusive and diverse when it comes to gender identity as well. And I think that that is something that we're very coming along very well with in Iceland, although there, there is a lot, again, a lot more that we can be improving upon, but with kids, you know, when I have four children with my husband and an adult stepdaughter. Uh, three of my children are sons. And, you know, we're to pivot back to gender equality when, you know, when we're always teaching our daughters, you know, be self-confident and speak up for yourself and do this and do that. And again, we're pushing so much of the responsibility on our young girls that they have to do this or that. Um, whereas, for instance, you know, majority of perpetrators of gender-based violence or domestic violence are actually men. So from a very young age, and it's not hard, we, we can talk to our boys about uh, consent, about understanding the idea of limits and encouraging that from a young age and sort of adding to the complexity as we, as we need to be doing that. 
And uh, it's something that I'm very mindful of now, just because I am the mother of, of three boys, you know, talking to them, talking to them about being, you know, accepting of, of what they see as, you know, they're exposed to so much on the internet and everything. And they might also get very stilted views of what, how a man is supposed to be, how a teenage boy is supposed to be or behave. And, and, you know, I want to tell them that sort of how they are is also good enough to be good, mm. respectful, kind people. Mm. Do they have many uh, peers at school who are immigrant children? Uh, you know, do they have friends who come from different backgrounds? No, I would say it kind of depends on the school here in the areas. You know, there's some areas that have a higher percentage of foreign born people. Um, they, I think there is maybe, there's about 20 kids in each of their classes and there is maybe one other one that also has one foreign born parent. So maybe as a bilingual child, but that's it. Um, in other neighborhoods, that percentage is, is much, much higher. And, you know, maybe it's because their father is the president, but probably, probably not. It's probably because I also speak Icelandic that many people, for instance, they don't think of my children as the children of immigrants. They think of them completely as Icelandic children. And I have a, a good friend here who's a lawyer who is originally from Jamaica and her children um, who were born here in Iceland with an Icelandic father are always asked, well, where do you come from? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, we're, we're here. We're born in Reykjavik. And, yeah. and, and they are seen much more from the 50% of them that is, is with an immigrant background. Mm. There's a, yeah. What, what, what are the kind of stats on, on ethnic diversity in Iceland? In Iceland? It's still, it's still, I mean, it's still very monocultural is, I think. Is that, is that fair to say? It is. I, I would actually say it's much more multicultural than you think. Okay. Um, and has changed very rapidly. So Iceland has more uh, people living here with foreign origin than there are senior citizens in the country. Okay. Uh, so it's rapidly changing. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's yeah. over 15% of the country uh, is foreign born. And right. in the US, that number is 10%. Right. And, you know, now in the US, obviously, many, you know, a large majority of the people are children, grandchildren, great grandchildren of immigrants. Um, in Iceland, there was, you know, the, there was no indigenous population that were that were exploited when they were moved. So the, the island was empty when it was first settled. Um, and so people, you know, could trace their ancestry back for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. And in probably the mid 90s, I think less than 1% of the population was foreign born. So there's been a huge explosion. Mm. And, and the majority of those are from Europe. So uh, there is, you know, people of color have different challenges here. It's a much smaller group. But there is absolutely a lot more diversity in the country, especially than there used to be. And that obviously brings some challenges, but I also see it as a huge opportunity. And I, I genuinely believe that most people in the country see it as a good thing. That's great. Yeah. And how, how, how hard is it to learn Icelandic? Uh, it depends on the day you ask me. I'll always say it's hard, so I get more sympathy. <laughs> I mean, it, sounds, it sounds quite tough, like the words, the pronunciation. Yeah. Obviously, you have different linguistic symbols as well to, yes. you know, to learn. I mean, it's, I would say it's must, it must be easier than learning than a native English speaker learning mm. Cantonese. Um, and the grammar is less complicated than Russian, for instance. But I think, you know, by comparison to a lot of, especially Western European languages, yes, it's more difficult. Um, there is one thing I just wanted to highlight, which I find really fascinating, that Iceland has a female, has had a female prime minister, has a female prime minister, and a female chief of police and a female bishop of the national church. Mm-hmm. Are these women that you see on a regular basis? Do you have much 
to do with them on a like in terms of your role? Oh, um, well, Iceland is very small. So I see, you know, you kind of run into people as well all of the time. Um, you, you know, if, if I go to an event, for instance, maybe there's a relevant minister, um, you, you know, who is also attending the event and I would see them. I was at the Literature Awards this week and the Minister of Culture was there, for example. Um, but, you know, there isn't anything formal or regular in the sense that, for instance, my husband regularly meets with the prime minister, Um and not in that sense, but you, you know, you often run into each other and yeah, as you say, there's a lot, you, you know, you see a lot of women, it's almost 50, 50 in parliament. Um, so the number of female cabinet ministers, it was interesting when the, uh, COVID pandemic broke, it was generally, um, when they were presenting new restrictions, the, as the chief medical officer is also a woman. And at the time, uh, there's been a cabinet uh, shift since then, but at the time, the you know the prime minister, the minister of health were also women. The minister of education was a woman. So the people who were coming forward often to talk about the issues that were relevant to the pandemic were all women. Sometimes, it's incredible though. It's just like as a visual, as, as a visual in my mind, that's so different to what we've been looking at, you know, for two years, and and that has to feed into the circularity of why your stats on equality stay high because you see it and so you you know girls know that they can achieve it and that you know feeds a kind of healthy cycle yeah. of and it is officially one of the happiest nations on earth I it mean, is you know what a brilliant title <laughs> it is great yeah we the Finns keep beating us for some reason <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that is what is it what is it you need to do to beat know. them I, I, I'm completely, I don't know how we, I think the reason the Nordics do well, and this is not, I'm going to give credit to uh, an article and I can't remember the name of the author, but it's completely not my own idea, but I read it on the internet in a newspaper um, that, for example, if one compares it to the US where there's this really ambitious American dream that everybody thinks they need to achieve and therefore it's almost so unattainable that people are more likely to be disappointed Whereas maybe right. maybe people have set the bar lower in the Nordic. Really interesting. How life is. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. you know it's going to be dark in the winters here, so you don't really have any edge. Your bar is too high, Eliza. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Have you been to um, Iceland, Shona? Um, no, but I, it's on my bucket list. So I really would love to go. I went and had a great time. Yes. And and also I, I experienced that um that that stereotype that you talk about of incredibly helpful um Iceland. So I I had a car, I hired a car which was not the best car for the weather. It was December, it was crazy, crazy weather like I've never seen. Is it seen. convertible? Um yeah, yeah, it's not a roof. No. Uh, but it skidded I skidded off the road and within a normal like here, that would be a catastrophe and it would take hours for somebody to come and help. And literally within five minutes somebody had driven past, stopped, got loads of shovels out of their car. Put, men and women, women. Men and women, yeah, no family, just children. Children, all, 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 all this whole thing happened, and I was back on the road with yeah. It was amazing and That's lovely nice. people. Yeah, the uh, the search and rescue crew here, which are the people who would sort of officially come to your aid if your car went off the road or if there was a you know accident or if your trampoline blew away in the bad weather, and they're all <laughs> volunteer run. Oh, so they? oh my god, really incredible. It's really I profile one woman who runs one of the search and rescue chapters in the book um, because it's incredibly tough. And I remember when I spoke to her you know, in these groups where there's still kind of a majority of men, I thought that I, I thought maybe she's going to tell me a story about how she had to overcome, yeah. you know, misogyny or this kind of, you can't be tough enough to be in this sort of attitude. 
And at least for her, she said she experienced it as the most gender blind organization that she had joined. And maybe that's because you do have to, you know, you have to like repel these cliffs and jump out of helicopters. And And so if you've done all that and you've kind of passed those tests, people aren't going to say you're not tough enough. You're not man enough. (laughs) Exactly. Wow. How refreshing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. Moving on. Should we, could you want to talk us through your third change? Yes, sure. One is that everyone will work to eliminate gender-based violence and shift the stigma to perpetrators. Uh, Gender-based violence is still a big challenge in Iceland. And it's something I talk about in the book as well. We call almost the Nordic paradox. There are actually higher number of reported cases of gender-based violence than there are in in other countries. And that we see that as well in the other Nordics. And we don't really know. Is that because there are just straight up more cases like this? Or hopefully we think it's maybe because there's there's less stigma about talking about it. There's a broader definition of what constitutes gender-based violence. It includes, for instance, psychological abuse. Um, and there's more trust with the police that people feel if they take their cases that they might be taken more seriously. But regardless of that fact, there are still a number of cases. They still increase during the pandemic. You know, they're still going on. And, you know, we can't have a gender equal society when there are still these incidences of gender based violence. And we need to be working on that and focusing on that. And again, as I add, they're shifting the stigma to the perpetrators. We, we Again, there's still sometimes a tendency in Iceland society for people to kind of quickly react and say, oh, wait, why didn't, why didn't she leave the house when this started to happen? Or, you know, why did she have so much to drink and then walk home by herself or et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think with the Me Too movement, which has happened also here in Iceland, we have, you know, continuous waves of that in different sectors of society. We are gradually shifting that to, uh, you know, to shift the the blame to perpetrators and also to believe the the victims more or the, the survivors, I should say. Yeah, it is. It seems so obvious that the shame should be on the perpetrator and, and yet it still never plays out that way. There's um, a big problem in the UK with that still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the poli- policing has a huge part in, in the UK. Yeah. In that, and, in you know, we need to improve on that here, but just they're doing measures, for instance, of, of having, I, I learned last week about a an artificial intelligence program they're piloting at one of the universities where people who have their cases that are about to go to court can try a sort of virtual reality um a virtual reality court case so that the the women who are about to go and maybe give evidence can actually go in and experience what it might be like in the, in the courtroom so that it's less traumatic for them at the beginning or having maybe just one point of contact or something online so that you can go in and check the status of, you know, where your, um, your case is in the system at any one time, just all of these things that hopefully make the process a little easier for people. Mm. Yeah. That's Simple, exactly. That's really simple. But uh, yeah, the, the like the fear factor of just the process itself, mm. let alone the the, the, the events yeah. that led up to that process, is is is. It's a just really- that level of just very little things that show you you're caring a bit more. You know, kindness. Exactly. I mean, I can only imagine. You know, the trauma of having endured that to begin with must be enough that then you don't also need to. You know, the fewer times you have to retell the story, for example, the better. Yeah. Yeah, and not having things like your phone removed and, you know, punitive measures as, as a victim of a, a crime, a trauma, as you say. What other kind of uh, initiative schemes have you seen that you think will help m- make this shift work? 
I think, you know, the, uh, the other one I've seen is, again, is this sort of more central point of contact for, you know, so that people know the process by which they're doing this. And they're mm-hmm. constantly changing the, um, the legal system as well. So now, for instance, uh, there was a law that came into place on, on so-called revenge porn now mm-hmm. so that it's illegal, you know, if somebody is sharing um, images, sort of sexually explicit images of a former partner or something like that online, that that is something that is also being targeted. And again, that's a huge a huge area that that we need to uh, to work on preventing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and and as it goes back to what you were saying earlier about um, children and and role models and stereotyping and all that kind of stuff about teaching boys as well as girls about what consent looks like and good behaviour and all of those things, mm-hmm. I guess. And and you know we all we need to have room to make mistakes. All of us, you know, we all make mistakes, um, and we all need to kind of show contrition and learn all of this too. So we need to have this kind of we need to have room for the dialogue to take place, you know, and um, and and just to think about the unsubtle messages. You know, it's like bullying that you teach kids at school that um, if you're n- if you're not the bully, but you stand around and watch it happening, the person who is the victim of the bullying sees six people against one, even if it's one person who's doing it. Mm. And, and I think, you know, if we look at images on, on say Instagram and, you know, teenagers on Instagram and, you know, when I've seen like the, the sort of teenage group that I know and the guy, you know, just to generalize, the boys seem to be them kicking a football and doing this sports thing. And, and the, the, the girls are, you know, 13, 14, and they've clearly taken some kind of a selfie that they've spent ages taking a million photos for the right angle. And they're, you know, they're very, I guess, quote unquote, innocent looking, but somehow we're sending these messages that, you know, we're focusing on how the girls look and what the boys are achieving. And, um, you know, a boy might want to like a photo because that's his friend and he wants to be nice and encouraging. Mm. And then she gets the message that that's the kind of picture that she'd be putting up. And it kind of perpetuates itself somehow, even, even at that age, which isn't, has no, you know, sort of nefarious intentions. But I think you're, you're kind of, you're kind of starting to plant the seed of, of how people should be behaving. I find that fascinating, particularly that you're saying as a a woman living in Iceland, because I have two teenagers and they definitely, my son doesn't really like playing football, but my daughter definitely falls into the category of selfies and, you know, being online a lot with her friends. And obviously they care about how they look. Um, But in Iceland, are children and teenagers not being taught a bit more about equality? And do you not see a difference, a shift in how they're being raised? I think that, you know, those things are always happening with teenagers. It's it's always a dialogue and a concern, you know, what access they're having to what age, you know, especially boys are seeing pornography or whether they're asking girls of their own age to send them sexually explicit images or all of these. But maybe the shift is that it's being talked about more mm. and that it's being talked about um, with hopefully less stigma so that girls, you know, maybe feel like, oh, I did send him a photo once I meant to, but then it kind of got out of control that they feel like they can still you know, come forward and talk about it. And I think that broader dialogue of, of what consent is, I think, you know, Iceland is a broadly speaking, very liberal society when it comes to say issues of sexuality. And therefore that line of consent is very important that people are teaching them not to say you can't engage in this behavior. It's wrong or it's dirty to engage in certain kinds of behavior, but you can only do it if both parties um, consent to it without a sort of incorrect power dynamic and with the knowledge that you can also withdraw consent at any point, that consent granted once doesn't isn't a sort of free pass forever. Right. And, and, and I think that's the kind of thing that we need to continue to be to, to be constantly vigilant about. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. That 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 that, that consent is only in that moment. It's, yeah, it's an ongoing dialogue. Dialogue, in fact, is right. crucial, isn't it? And I yeah, and I think for teenagers as well, it's all you know. Teenagers, all these raging balls of hormones, or or whatever, you, you, <laughs> however you would want to describe it, and they also need to know that some of the things that they're feeling or thinking or curious about, that's very very normal. You know, you mm-hmm. want them to be able to ask people about it because they're going to have those questions. They're going to feel that way. And they're either going to ask us parents or maybe somebody at school, or, and if we don't want to talk about it, they're going to look it up on the internet and who knows. Yeah. Don't want them going there. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. And actually speaking of you as parents, I, there was an interview where you said recently, I found quite interesting was when you are on a business trip, for example, or doing a work related event. And somebody says to you, you know, your husband is obviously not there with you, but somebody says, who's looking after the children? Which wow. is just, you know, it's just Every still, time. Every time. still happening. <laughs> what do you say? Do you have a set line? Um, I don't have a sort of funny line, but it is funny how, you know, I mean, my husband and I, obviously now, especially since he's been president, sometimes we have to travel somewhere together because say we go on a state visit or something like that. But generally, if he is going away to some sort of session or conference or meeting, he will go by himself. And then when I have to travel for my work, I will travel by myself because we have four young children. And so we try to keep it as much as possible. One or the other of us is, is at home. And, you know, when he goes away, say for a week doing something, that's fine. And everybody thinks it's all well and normal. And if I go away for a few days, I mean, the next day people just think he is a superhero for, <laughs> for surviving. You know, they can't believe that, you know, how are you doing? How are you doing with the kids? Or is it going all right with you? Are you getting enough sleep? And and, you think, well, and he actually, he has more children than I have, you know, he has, he's more experienced than I am at this whole parenting thing. <laughs> yeah, we've heard, we've heard that from other people on this pod, the amazing double standard of It's also unfair to him, you know, I think it it talks down to his abilities as a parent and as a father as well. Mm, Of course. Yeah. So what's, what's the next thing that's going to take you away from your home and your role as a mother? (laughs) What's next on the horizon? Yes, exactly. Well, I hope it's (laughs) it's in-person promotion of Secrets of the Spracker. Yeah. We will see you in person in March, Eliza. That would be very special. I, I hope so. But I try to be very grateful for how it is. And I think, you know, I probably I would never have written the book if it weren't for the pandemic when everything kind of shifted and, and, and schedules changed. So I, I, I kind of think, well, it, this has all been an exciting adventure for me and I've never written a book before. And, and so everything else is icing. But I, of course, I hope that I'm able to, to do some in-person prevents. That would be amazing. Events. And the book's out on International Women's Day on the 8th of March. Yes, I have to say it's it's a very special read and it is really a wonderful mix of a kind of memoir but other people's stories and history and business and it's but it's written in such a, a very accessible way and I really hope that as many men and women as possible read it. Absolutely. More kick-ass women. Thank you so much for coming on the pod, Eliza. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. as it should be from Prima Donna.
world as it should be from Prima Donna. <laughs>